Hey guys, this is Tho Bishop with Radio Rothbard, and I want to let you guys know about another great Mises event we have coming up on November 4th in Fort Myers, Florida. As you know, everyday Americans feel the political capture of the economy. Inflation, taxes, and regulatory costs hit our paychecks and our savings. The regulatory capture of the medical industries, food and energy production, and the various instruments of big tech empower the regime with new tools to promote their latest ideological cause. The ever-growing burden of government debt has become a crisis without any political will to address it. We're going to be talking about these very issues at this event in Fort Myers. And best of all, we have a discount code for Radio Rothbard listeners. If you use promo code RR2023, RR as in Radio Rothbard, 2023, you'll get $10 off at this event. If you want to learn more, visit Mises.org slash FL2023. FL is in Florida. Look forward to seeing you there. Welcome back to Radio Rothbard. I am your host, Tho Bishop, and joined this week not by Ryan McMakin, but by Connor O'Keefe, who wears many hats at the Institute, has a weekly column on the Mises Wire, including one this week, which we'll be discussing in the topic today Unavoidable um, is the renewed conflict in the Middle East and the aftermath of Hamas's attack on Israel. And um, you know, Connor and I were talking on off air about kind of the difficulty of dealing with this topic because, you know, for for one, there's a lot of changing variables on this. You know, the size and scale of this conflict. You know, does this become something? larger? Do other countries get involved? Um, you know, the, the specter of American involvement, which is something obviously we do not want to see. Um, Ryan has a great column on that on the wire this week. But it is it's a very emotionally charged topic. It's a very conflicting topic. You know, when you see, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting seeing war play out in the age of social media. And we, you know, where you, you, Almost it, like real time, you're seeing this stuff play out. You know, the the rave at the the Gaza Strip border and things like that. And you know, Connor, as you know, both of us are on the younger side of the Mesa staff. We we both kind of come of age in the era of the Iraq War. Um, you know, we've we've kind of only known sort of chaos and conflict within the Middle East. And you know, I, I know it's 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 very difficult to see you know what had kind of appeared to be a period of kind of moving past the war on terror days. You know, they, they, those are back. <laughs> you know, if 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 politics lasts the eight years or so, is kind of a return to the '90s. In some ways, it seems like we're we're speed running back into the 2000s. And uh, you you have a, an article about um, you know the the importance of of respect for the innocence involved in any struggle between states and, you know, Hamas having, you know, being a terrorist group, but also acting as the government authority within Palestine. Um, you know, people, innocent people are, con are, are caught up in the mix of this. And, um, you know, so what, what have your, been your thoughts last few days as, as difficult as they might be? Uh, it's just, it's just been terrible. Um, like I said, I've just kind of felt sick with all this. Obviously, it's all over the news, all over social media. Um, and uh, it's just like when things like this happen and everything is so 
fresh. Um, it's kind of when you know, emotions are highest. Um, and as I said in my article, like rightfully so, I, I think the correct reaction to some of the imagery and just the reports we're getting um, is to be emotional, angered, outraged. Um, and uh, so I've been feeling a lot of that. But, um, you know, just with, with this stuff, there's just there's so many unknowns. There's so much information that we'll have someday that we just don't have right now. The information we do have, um, you know, it can get messy in terms of how trustworthy uh, certain sources are. Um, even, you know, something that, that is as seemingly straightforward as video, you don't know if it's uh, really if it's either portraying what they claim to, you know, whoever's publishing it claims to be portraying, or if it's published, you know, from, if it really took place in 2014 or something like that. There's um, there's just a lot of unknowns. And I guess in kind of times like this, for me personally, I really try to revisit some of my principles, some of the, you know, foundations of my moral and ethical beliefs to do my best to stay grounded um, in that end, the, uh, the, the article I uh, wrote this week, um, it was kind of me trying to work that out uh, for myself. And really, like, w when I see, you know, what happened when Hamas uh, stormed out of Gaza and started slaughtering people and taking them captive, um, it's like, obviously, that's horrific, but... Um, I think it's you know, important to spell it like, why specifically is that horrific? And it's horrific because these are innocent people that don't deserve to be attacked. Um, I think that the risk in uh, times like these uh, is that w when you're not you know, putting in that effort to stay grounded in kind of your, your morals, um, uh, things can get hazy and... Uh, like, especially with something like terrorism, where, you know, as it's been laid out pretty convincingly by people that have studied terrorism, the uh, terrorism is a tactic, and the tactic is meant to draw a reaction, um, a reaction kind of more specifically from the civilian population, you know, there's that whole, I'm blanking on the book, but where they studied suicide bombers and they found that suicide bombers, um, they target democracies. They don't target tyrannical authoritarian regimes. They target places where public opinion matters, at least to some extent. Um, and so I guess these are all things that I try to um, keep in mind kind of during this emotional you know, rightfully emotional, hazy time period, kind of right after something horrific like this um, happens. And, you know, so really, like what I said before, the killing of innocence, I think, is um, it's kind of what I focus in on is, you know, like that's wrong. Um, you know, I have a I have a Rothbardian sort of um, ethical framework that uh, I use. And, you know, under that, killing innocence is wrong, but also killing innocence in response to that is wrong. And I think that's important to say, you know, right off the bat, uh, that, that's important um, because our history has shown, like, like what you're saying, kind of the, the violence of the Middle East, you know, throughout our lifetimes. I really think just the war on terror 
um, and this is something I touch on in the second half of that article, uh, can really be characterized as a series of, I call it a series of indiscriminate revenge cycles where they kill some of our civilians, we fire back and kill, you know, maybe some of the guilty there, but also some of their civilians, and then they fire right back. And um, so I guess that's just sort of where my head goes when something hor horrific like this um, happens, you know, even, even though we don't know too many specifics and things are still moving so fast over there. That, that was kind of my, my motivation to um, write the article, not just to get those ideas out there, but to kind of work through these difficult questions myself. And it's interesting because like the, you know, again, talking about engaging in warfare in this time of social media, you know, it, it, it does sort of make me pause and, you know, you, you see sort of this, you know, the, 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 when you see people kind of shot in their homes and again, you know, photos that came out, you know, about, you know, burned babies and the like, and again, it's, it's, it's you know, you have a, a visceral reaction and it feels like, again, and right or wrong, it, it's, it, when you see sort of military operations and you see, you know, buildings collapsing underneath missiles, you know that there's charred by you know, babies there as well, right? You, you know that you have innocent people killed. You know that, you know, you, you see drone bombing footage of, you know, bombing, you know, weddings and funerals and you kind of like a Call of Duty, you know, style sort of displacement to it where Hamas's terrorist actions are, you know, you, you can picture yourself in the house next to these people. And I, I think that's one of the, again, these, these, as you mentioned, this, this, the way that terrorism operates off of this emotional framework. And of course, this has been kind of a, a key element of the conflict between the state of Israel and Hamas and you know, Gaza Strip, West Bank, et cetera, for, for a long time now. This is a, a standard sort of cycle. Hamas attacks civilians to provoke a response, the military response from the state of Israel, target, you know, leads into air support and artillery shells, Hamas places strategic military points around civilians. They bank upon civilian deaths to help spark international condemnation of Israel. Um, they use that to stop these operations and then there's ceasefire for a while until the whole cycle starts over again. And I, I think it is worth addressing that, you know, when we, you know, us as Rothbardians looking at this from a state analysis standpoint. So first and foremost, that the state of Israel completely failed here. You know, the, 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 the failure on the protection side from the security side of it. I mean, you know, people are talking about this as Israel's 9-11, you know, and that is usually evoked in response to this being a moment that will forever change the 
viewpoint of your average Israeli, maybe your, your average Jew across the world, a lot of people coming back um, to Israel. Uh, I've seen you know, massive you know, numbers of, of kind of the, the IDF numbers rising with people going to Israel to take up arms. But there's also another element to it where just like in 9-11, representing a massive failure on the intelligence front, um, again, whether you are someone who prescribes that failure to incompetency, to deliberate subterfuge, you know, a, a, a deliberate a, a, a standing down to get a desired eventual end. I'll let individuals have their own opinions on that. You know, this was nothing short of a, again, a, a tragic, I mean, a horrific breakdown of the perception of kind of Israeli military might in defense in intelligence agencies. I'm getting, you know, Mossad, you know, celebrated as, you know, one of the most effective intelligence agencies out there. Um, and there's also, again, this, this, this additional narrative element of historically that the calculations that the state of Israel has made about wanting to deal, you know, preferring the uh, perception of delegitimacy, of, of delegitimacy that an organization like Hamas has compared to other attempts to kind of create a, a more secular Palestinian state and conflicts there between you know, two state solutions and the like. And again, you, you go back to the extent to which the people of Israel have, you know, they are the ones paying the price for the failures of the state of Israel. And, you know, this is a, just what I'm curious of and what, what, I, what I fear, and, and you know, a lot is gonna change and, you know, we're, we're not gonna work it out all on this episode, but it feels like some of the, the, the larger political calculations might have changed. You know, does uh, international condemnation that is inevitably going, you know, you already see it out there with, you know, criticism of you know, stopping power and water to the Gaza Strip and the like, you know, are the Israeli people, you know, their threshold for taking on, you know, greater deaths um, from on the ground military operations with, you know, troops going in to Gaza, you know, their perception is going to be changed by this. Um, the, the amount that they care about international pressure is going to change from this. And this is why terrorism is so effective is that, you know, when you have people operating off these raw nerves of, again, just, you know, in response to horror, um, horrific things tend to, to result from this. And, you know, it, it feels to me that, you know, we, we are seeing a, a shift in kind of the global order of, you know, recent decades. I mean, you know, America, the, the globe has kind of been, you know, the, the idea of America world place, an idea that we attack, an idea that America cannot, you know, particularly given choices that we have made and you know, selected you know, our, our response to 9-11 being a major part of it, that, you know, we've had a, a global order that has been propped up by assumptions of American hard power and, you know, the, 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 you know, our defense budget and the like propped up by American soft power, um, you know, largely through our economic might and the global reserve currency of the dollar. 
and you see episodes like you know what's been playing out in the Russia-Ukraine border for several for the last few years. You see you know the whole conflict that's been going on between Armenia and Azerbaijan, um, which doesn't get nearly as much press coverage. There's now concerns about you know potential for war with uh, Serbia and Kosovo and the like. Um, obviously, there's been growing tensions in the Indo-Pacific and concerns about China and the way that impacts you know, Japan and Korea and obviously Taiwan and things like that. And it just feels like a lot of the assumptions that have underpinned kind of the global order of, you know, kind of the post-Cold War world are kind of breaking apart at the seams. And I think a big part of that has been the way that America has undermined you know, again, deciding, I mean, the, the amount of blood and treasure spent making the, the Middle East a, a less stable place, you know, knocking off you know, Saddam Hussein and Muammar Gaddafi and having terrorist agents kind of pop up in the void and the like, that, you know, this, this is a, a global breakdown of a lot of assumptions that have been underpinning a lot of the, the geopolitics of the world. And, you know, it, it's, 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 it's interesting being, you know, a younger person watching this around us, um, you know, seeing just, you know, kind of, you know, and there's a lot of talk out there about you know, the fourth turning and the way these sort of things kind of work in waves in, in the history of civilization, but it, it definitely feels like we are, we are in, um, you know, very serious times. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, not that this started this past weekend, um, like it's it's been a broader thing and i i really think like like you're right it's disorienting for those of us who are young enough where this has been our whole life has been um kind of this pax americana post cold war um era where um not only did you have people like the you know the neocons who were kind of dreaming up these um projects for american hegemony uh but, we're, you know, th there was actually something to the fact that, like, we could go and just, you know, take out Saddam when he invaded Kuwait. The, nobody was going to stop us. That was something that was in the power of the United States government to do. Um, and, you know, I, I'm of the belief that uh, that um, post-Cold War era was, you know, it, it, it was killed by those very neoconservative American projects to remake the Middle East. Um, but I, I really think that the Russian invasion of Ukraine was, um, in my mind, in, in terms of like, you know, the, the current transition we're going through, that, that was just a major uh, moment there where they just did something that Washington, um, you know, did not want them to do. And uh, obviously, Washington has thrown their support behind the um, Ukrainian government there, but it's it's been notable that um, that that sort of global hegemony is being challenged by powers like Russia and um, that yeah, and you obviously you have all the stuff going on with BRICS. There's just um, it, it feels like the bluff is being called, and there are still plenty of people uh, in the U.S. that you know go you know charge ahead as if. Um, we have, you know, obligation being a separate thing, but the ability to, um, you know, stop 
all bad things from happening on every square inch of Earth. Um, and uh, I think that what's interesting about this week now is you have um, after what you know we're over a year and a half into you know the the invasion of Ukraine, um, after pouring all that money, all those weapons there, you know our stockpiles they're not what they once were, and um, to the extent people are calling on you know sending military aid to Israel um, to kind of uh, to use the same playbook. Um, it, it's interesting to see who, if anybody, wrestles with the fact that we're in a different position um, than we were, uh, you know, um, January 1st, 2022, before um, sending so much over to Kiev. I don't know. It, it's it's an interesting thing to kind of look at this story on multiple scales. Um, so, like, obviously, like my article was very small scale um, in terms, you know, the individual, the individual level of, um, you know, innocence in the line of fire and, you know, kind of a call to, to go after the guilty, but only the guilty. Um, but then, you know, you zoom way out to not just the geopolitical, geopolitics of this, but kind of the um, historical cycles. Um, and there's just, uh, th there's so many unknowns and things are moving so fast, but it's pretty clear that um, the world that we grew up in, uh, you know, it, it's, it feels wrong to say it's changing, but like the, the events that we're seeing um, are indicating that the world that we grew up in um, is not exactly the world that we have right now. And I, I, another interesting component of this is that you know the role that some of America's attempts and various adventures might have played in this uh, conflict and in this attack is also worth I mean noting um, you know there's reports out there of um, again de dealing with the fog of war particularly in a social media environment you know it's always important to be skeptical of any reports until there's firmer documentation, but not difficult to believe, right, that, um, you know, all those very nice shiny weapons and resources that uh, were left in the sands of Afghanistan uh, playing a role, <laughs> making their way into uh, the West Bank or into, into Gaza, um, the role that uh, some of the Ukrainian arms sent over there, not that Ukrainian state would necessarily, you know, not, not trying to place any blame on Zelensky or anything like that, but, you know, when you're dealing with, uh, you know, war environments, the idea is that uh, you're going to have gangsters and the like take advantage of the chaos to relocate <laughs> weaponry for their own pur uh, purposes and, and sell it and put it in the hands of, of people with very bad intentions is all out there. And so, again, like the the lack of, you know, the, the hubris that has, uh, you know, from from Washington, um, you know, fuels. I mean, again, I don't want to get into kind of the, the, the convenient, you know, blame America narrative for, for every bad thing in the, 
that that happens in the world. But you know, the reality is is that there there is a lot of of weaponry out there that uh, you know American taxpayers have paid for that have not been particularly well accounted for. Um, and hopefully, you know, what, what's going to be interesting to see is the lasting power of any of the lessons from the last 20 years, because we, we've seen a shift, particularly in the political right, um, you know, the, the kind of war wariness, lessons learned from the disasters of the Bush and Obama foreign policy. Um, you know, I, I have been, you know, it's, you know, this is like the, the perfect sort of conflict, right, for a lot of those, you know, political gains, for lack of a better word, could be lost. And obviously we're seeing, you know, see Lindsey Graham, you know, talking to Mark Levin, and it's, you know, you're having flashbacks to 2002, and you're know, talking about holy war, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, you, plenty of that content out there, mostly from the same names that uh, have, you know, have no shame, learn no lessons. Um, but it has been interesting to see, um, obviously, you know, there, was, there was an interview with Tucker Carlson, with uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, who, you know, pushed back hard against the more explicit, shameless neocon voices out there, people like Dan Crenshaw Sean Lindsey Graham. Um, you know, I, I want to credit uh, Matt Walsh, um, who with The Daily Wire, and obviously Ben Shapiro probably has a different view on this, but, you know, he has made it very clear that, you know, he does not want to see any American involvement um, in this conflict, that America can't afford another war. Um, you, you've even seen, um, you know, Ron DeSantis, who, you know, has been very hawkish on Iran and continues to take a very hawkish position in terms of economic retaliation to Iran, um, you know, but he has avoided any sort of calls for you know, American troops on the ground and the like. And so it seems that while I have no doubt that um, we will see the response from Washington, um, very similar to the response that we've seen, we saw from Washington after the Russian invasion, plenty of tax dollars are gonna be going to Israeli military forces, yeah, no, no, no worries there. Um, in fact, uh, there, there was a, a uh, statute that kind of put American taxpayer uh, support for the Israeli, uh, Israeli military on auto pay um, so that even if you have complete uh, gridlock in Washington and obviously you still have the, the Speaker of the House battle, going on and playing out there that, that don't worry, at least, uh, at least Washington money will continue to, to play into to that. Um, you know, they, they've prioritized that. Um, but it's going to be interesting to see how, you know, the growing, yeah, I, I don't know if you want to call it anti-war necessarily, um, but growing skepticism of American military adventurism, um, see the state that that plays over the coming months. Um, and of course, you know, we, we are only, you know, one, you know, bad situation, the same way, you know, same situation in Russia and Ukraine, whenever you have hot battlefields, whenever you have very active military fronts, and whenever you have American 
targets or in the case of Russia, Ukraine, NATO allies that close to the battlefront, um, you know, you are, you know, where we're sending aircraft carriers, you know, closer to the situation right now, you know, what happens if you have a speedboat full of explosives, you know, do something that uh, brings America into the war? What happens if a stray Russian missile, you know, kills people in Poland? Um, that's one of the dangers is that the, the thin line from a, a regional conflict to a global conflict, um, which could have civilizational consequences, is, is very, very thin. And so hopefully some of the proclaimed lessons learned from the 2000s are, you know, continue to have hold in certain pockets of D.C. and are not quickly wiped away um, in response to the, again, understandable emotions and anger from an event like this. Right. And like, I don't know, it, it'll be interesting to see. Um, I, I feel like the next couple of days will be telling um, in that way. Um, and, you know, like I always tend to kind of um, doubt, uh, you know, how accurate what I'm hearing uh, on social media is in, for representing, you know, the, the broader discourse. I don't know um, how much or how good I am at getting a good, uh, you know, sample <laughs> of um, American public opinion. It, you know, some voices might be louder than others. But um, when, like I said earlier, um, it seems pretty clear, you know, we can't know for sure, but it seems pretty clear that uh, the the purpose behind an attack of this fashion was to provoke a reaction. You know that, that's what terrorism is. If they're terrorists, uh, that's probably what they intended. That reaction um, has been kicked off. The airstrikes have been raining down for days now. Um, I saw this morning, Thursday morning, uh, it looked like the official death count for. Palestinians ticked higher than Israelis. So like, okay, we've crossed that threshold. And um, from my perspective, it does seem like the, which you would kind of expect after something like this, the left wing, to use a very overly simplistic um, uh, term, has been kind of quiet about this. Those that are not like, you know, the Hillary Clinton kind of neoliberal Hawks, but um, the, the people that are probably more on the side of the Palestinians in this conflict, um, obviously you have you know plenty of things to point to. People you know going out and demonstrating and just saying horrific things um, about the Israelis who were killed. Um, but uh, like I think you know AOC only came out and tweeted about this very directly for the first time yesterday. I think and um, as more and more Palestinians get killed. It'll be interesting to see if this kind of dynamic uh, shifts at all. And to your point, you know, like somebody like Matt Walsh, who's, you know, obviously very aggressively condemning these attacks, um, once again, rightfully so, uh, if um, that sort of, uh, like right now you kind of, you have, a lot, a lot of uniformity that you're not, you haven't seen in a while between kind of like the, the more MAGA um, parts of the right and like the bulwark, like the 
um, neocons who um, have kind of uh, renounced the Republican Party. They're saying you know, there, there's some divergence there, but their reactions have been kind of similar to these events. But um, in the next few days, that might change. Those schisms might come roaring back or they might not. You know, there's no way to predict that perfectly, but um, it's uh, it's an interesting um, kind of, you know, it feels wrong to call it an opportunity, but this will make kind of clear where people really stand. It already has made clear, but the way that these things change so fast, um, the way that reactions to atrocities change as the atrocity kind of grows a bit older. Um, it, it gives um, kind of a, a, an opportunity to sort of see where we stand politically that we don't often get you know, on a random Tuesday. Um, and so like that, that's just a whole other dynamic on top of all of this. Well, what was interesting too is that you know it, it feels we, we can't talk about any major event without having some sort of of Trump reference. But uh, one of the things I, I found interesting is um, you know Trump gave a speech this week, and um, he actually even you know he he took shots at Netanyahu during this speech, which is interesting. I mean, it's something that is completely you know unthinkable, particularly from a Republican politician, you know, kind of in the aftermath of this. Um, and now classic Trump, you know, I have no doubt that the leading motivation for it comes from Netanyahu congratulating Joe Biden on his election victory the night of the election rather than anything more substantive than that. But but it is interesting that, you know, you, you know just, just seeing that sort of response as just a, a change from... Um, yeah, again, it's very likely. I mean, I, and I, I, I don't think that the events of the last uh, last few days have have hurt his chances um, against against Biden next time around. But yeah, that, that's that's also kind of just an, an interesting political development um, that that is is worth monitoring going forward. But there's also, I, I think, you know, you, you mentioned some of the left's coalitions there, and I, I think that. You know, it, it will be interesting to see the schism there because, you know, you, you've seen rallies and, and protests and the like. Um, you know, Black Lives Matter groups having the Hamas paraglider on the graphic, which is you know not particularly subtle, but never subtle subtlety has never really been their specialty anyway. I suppose. Um, and so I'm interested to see how this shapes the politics of the left going forward because you you very clearly have a not small segment that is motivated by this sort of sense of intersectional social justice crusades, right? So the plight of the Palestinians is in common cause with the perceived victimization of, you know, black Americans and, you know, national indigenous people day and the like, right? You, you have on the left this, this collection of perceived victim groups that have no shame, have, have, are, are proud to announce their solidarity um, with not just Palestine, but I mean, very vocal, I mean, again, you know, alluding to outright celebration of Hamas itself, 
and that stands in contrast to the more traditional, um, you know, Hillary Clinton style Democrat party that, you know, has for the most part, you know, outside of, you know, some occasional wagging the finger at, you know, maybe some aggressive new settlement plans and you know, never been particularly fans of uh, Netanyahu and, and the more conservative political aspects of factions within Israel. Um, you know, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how those two um, paths continue going forward because I, I think that you know, the, the less political coalition in the U.S. Has, has long been sort of this hodgepodge of different demographics that don't have a lot of common cause. I mean, we've seen this even play up. I mean, some of these, these Muslim majority neighborhood communities in you know Michigan and Minnesota and the like right you know they were not down with having trans pride flags flying in government buildings um, you, you have a lot of of very stark differences within the left's sort of political coalition that have long been kind of held together by to on one hand you know different sort of patronage aspects, right, uh, you know, various, uh, you know, expanding civil rights benefits and, um, you know, well-financed groups that deal with certain sort of demographic interests and the like. And the other side's, you know, been hatred of Republicans, either Donald Trump particularly, um, you know, whether it is still the, the aftermath of the Bush administration. And I mean, worth noting that the American, um, Muslim community actually was a majority Republican minority group prior to um, the war on terror era. Um, and again, I do not want to try to <laughs> trivialize the events of the past week and kind of look at it purely from a political lens, but I think that this is a, really also a global issue when you consider the way that um, uh, major uh, you know, mass migration patterns, you know, in Europe itself being fueled by foreign policy, you know, the consequences of foreign policy and the like, the way that, you know, the different interests and perceptions when it comes to global affairs, seeing that play out in societies that have a, a you know, are, are not going to be unified they're not going to see the world from a similar lens. You know, we, we've gone from nations kind of built by common culture and, you know, often religion, language groups, common history, to kind of nations whose only common experience is, you know, who they write their tax check, or tax check to. And I think that's just kind of go, further kind of goes to some of the ways that the modern political order um, has... has it would be very interesting to see how it uh, responds to the unique stresses of some of this uh, this global turmoil. Yeah, and um, yeah, I agree with everything you said there, kind of about the left. And I really feel like um, I didn't really attack it directly um, in my article, but like, I, I like the left has just thrown. They've gone all in on this, like, collectivized justice view of the world. Um, and, you know, the, that's kind of how you get all these, like what you're saying, these groups that don't, you know, on paper seem to have a lot in common, but um, how to get them all 
together is you kind of just break everybody up into these like homogenous groups and then you know they're either oppressor or oppressed and um it's just so like when AOC is tweeting yesterday about how you know we shouldn't have collective punishment of the Gazans which is basically what I was arguing um in the article uh, it just rings so hollow coming from somebody like that in my opinion like like just this um the inability to or you know the unwillingness to um get specific when it comes to oppressors or aggressors or the enemy, um, whatever you want to call it, um, I think is something I, it really needs to be pushed back on. And um, it's just, it rings hollow when the people that do that for all, you know, the groups that they don't like uh, suddenly try to kind of appeal um, to, to reason, you know, when it's being turned on a group that they do like. And um, I don't know, but to my earlier point about, you know, atrocities kind of uh, tugging at the uh, potential schisms between, you know, political groups, um, you know, who knows if, if that's going to happen on the left. They've been, you know, very unified really since the, the Trump years. Um, and... Uh, I don't know. I, I haven't been watching them too closely with this. Like I said, they, they appear to be kind of quiet um, right now, or quieter than typical. Um, but who knows? So, yeah, so politically, you know, geopolitically, there's just, there, there's so much that's changing, and it's hard to see, you know, where we are right now, only a few days after this really kicked off. Uh, it's hard to see not even just where it's going, but where it stands right now with how fast things are moving. Well, I have a feeling this will be a topic that uh, will be working, making its way into future episodes of Radio Rothbard. We'll get Ryan's opinion in the next few weeks. Um, but I think we'll, we will leave it at that. We have going on this week um, our Supporters Summit. Um, it's going to be a great event in Auburn, Alabama. Um, we're going to have a lot of great content. The focus is on the end of the dollar. Um, so be on the lookout for those videos popping up next week. And also, if you want to have a play your own role in the Supporters Summit, we've got an uh, auction going on with some very neat um, things to bid on, um, some very rare books, a... Uh, life-size cutout of uh, Hans Hermann Hoppe and Murray Rothbard, if, uh, if, if you're looking for one of those. Uh, lunch with David Gordon in LA, who, who could turn that down? And also one of my favorites, even though I'm, I'm not an Auburn fan, um, some neat uh, football experiences for any uh, Auburn War Eagle fans out there. Um, one of the interesting things about the Mises Institute is we're located, our building is right across the street from the stadium there. Some of the most valuable piece of property in the fine city of Auburn. And so if you are a, a, a Auburn Tiger, um, you might want to check that out as well. And you can find more information about the auction at Mises.org slash auction 23. And um, so for Connor, this is Tho. Thank you for uh, tuning in and we'll see you next week.